Well, good morning. I don't think it's super controversial to say that we live in a time that is full of conflict. We're in the midst of a political season where I feel like every time you turn on any media in any way, you're being dragged into conflict and told to choose whether you have identified with the blue or with the red side of a particular issue or a particular candidate. We're also six months into a global war that has impacted ministries that we support, and for many of us, friends and business colleagues who are impacted by the war in uh, Ukraine. And to, to perhaps make matters worse, we've just started last night, or most people started last night, a football season that naturally brings hundreds of thousands of people in conflict, wearing their red versus the green, or their scarlet versus the gold. But it's within that context of conflict that we are today coming into a passage in Galatians that is perhaps the biggest conflict in Scripture around the gospel itself. A conflict that takes place between Paul and Peter and is retold to the Galatians in Paul's letter to them. And so with that, I ask that you turn in your Bibles to Galatians 2, verses 11 to 21. If you're using a Bible in the seat in front of you, it's on page 808. But I hope you'll read along with me. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men, men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law, that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. I think my first introduction to this passage was as a young child learning a memory verse. And within that uh, effort to learn a memory verse, I learned that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but he who lives in me. And that was pretty much my understanding of this passage. And through the years, I've read this passage many more times, and I have to say, this fell into that category in my reading of scripture that I call the O Peter passages. You know those passages that you read and you get to the end of the passage and you're like, oh, Peter, why did you step out of the boat? Oh, Peter, why did you deny Jesus three times? Oh, Peter, why, why did you listen to people in this setting? 
And yet the great advantage of reading this passage again and again is you start to realize a few things more about this passage. This is not about Peter in particular. This is about the core of the gospel itself. And so rather than focus on the memorable verse from this passage this morning, we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about the criticality of the gospel message. We're going to talk about the criteria for acting like Paul does in this passage. And we're going to talk about the challenge of hearing what Paul has to say if you're Peter in this passage. And so within that context, now let's, let's talk through the passage itself and say, okay, we're talking about the criticality of the gospel, and it actually starts off with Paul saying some very harsh words. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. There's no wiggle room there. We know that Paul is in conflict a lot in the New Testament, and yet this is the one time he goes directly at somebody who opposes him. We see other cases where that's not the case. He had a situation with Barnabas where they disagreed over John Mark and they kind of agreed to go their own separate ways, but he didn't call out Barnabas. He didn't call out John Mark publicly. What he did was resolve that between the two of them. We have situations where he was talking with the the, uh, leaders of his day and went and debated them at the Acropolis on top of Mars Hill. And he proclaimed the gospel in a very open and embracing way. And yet here he goes to one of the people who spent at least three years with Jesus, a person on whom um, or about whom Jesus said, upon your confession of faith is something I build my church, and he says to him, you are clearly in the wrong. And I think the reason he said that is because Peter was clearly in the wrong. (laughs) Go figure. But why Peter was wrong was because of the criticality of the gospel message. Because the gospel of message is not believe in Jesus and, unless you finish that sentence as Paul himself did when he and Silas were in the jail, which is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and become Jewish. Not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and follow these moral rules. Not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and believe these proper things. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And it seems that Peter, who knew this message, began listening to people he also respected. Wise men who loved God, but who had come to the wrong conclusion about the gospel. Because their belief in the gospel was that the gospel was added on to Judaism, not standing as a fulfillment of Judaism. And so they believed that in order to be a Christian, yes, you believed in Jesus Christ. You believed that his sacrifice was enough to save you if you also became Jewish. His sacrifice was enough to save you if you also fulfilled other requirements. And Paul says, absolutely not. And when he says absolutely not, and he calls out Peter as being clearly in the wrong, this isn't something he dealt with privately. He didn't set up a dinner meeting to call Peter over and say, listen, Peter, I'm concerned with your teaching. Hey, Peter, I wonder if you really understand scripture. What does this say? He confronted him publicly in front of all the others. Why did he do it publicly? Why didn't he do it personally? Why didn't he do it independently? Because this is the core of the gospel, and the gospel is critical to our understanding our relationship with God and critical to understanding all that he has done for us. And so Paul doesn't let Peter get away with this. He doesn't pass it off as a misunderstanding or a theological dispute or anything like that. He understands that the gospel itself is critical, 
And that while salvation may demand things from us when we receive it, the only requirement to receive salvation is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and the actions he has taken on our behalf. And one of the challenging things that we deal with every time we come to scripture and every time we learn more is we say, yes, but the Bible teaches more than that. It gives us more things for us to understand. It gives us Uh, establishes codes of conduct. It it teaches us how do we interact with people. But what he's saying in Paul is so crucially right on this point is that's after salvation. That's not before salvation. So as we build a deeper relationship with Jesus, if we have deepened our relationship with God, we should start to look a lot more like Jesus. But we don't start to look more like Jesus so that we get to be saved. We get to be saved, and then he begins his transforming work in our lives. And it's super easy for us to put the cart before the horse or the behavior change before the salvation. And so that's why Paul felt it so critical to challenge Peter in this area. Now, one of the things we know in church history that is extremely unfortunate is despite the gospel's um, direction to us and things that we can all get behind, we look at the individual church bodies and the individual people who unfortunately we're all sinful and we have decided to dispute with one another through the years and we fracture churches and we separate ourselves regardless of God's call for unity over things that are not about salvation. But I think what Paul would say is when it comes to the gospel, this is critical. This, this is something that you hang your hat on and it is very, very important that we understand what the gospel message is. He could have criticized Peter for a lot of things. He went directly at the gospel roots of the problem. He didn't talk about Peter in the context of Jews versus Gentiles. He even calls out some of the language that Peter may himself have used. But what did he go after was the centrality of the gospel. Now, when we disagree with one another, I think of a few different layers or different ways that we disagree with each other. And I think the most critical, as I would say from this passage, is things that are related to gospel truth. But then there's also other areas of theological truth. There's areas where we think that our understanding of God fundamentally changes the way we interact with the world. Maybe not from a salvation perspective, but from a way we interact with other people. And so that's why there's been this long history of people debating theology. This actually predates Jesus coming to earth. There have always been a rabbinic culture of debating the Torah, of debating what the Bible says, because sometimes understanding what God meant when he wrote what he wrote in scripture impacts the way we live our lives. It impacts the way we understand God. And there's tremendous value in that process. In fact, after this event occurred in Antioch, we hear of one of those cases in Acts 15, with both of these parties present and both of them working through theology together. And in Acts 15, in what is called the Jerusalem Council, the leading apostles and the leading people in the first century church got together to try and figure out how do we deal with the consequences of what Paul wrote here. Jesus gave a clear message, but he didn't fill out all of the details. And so what happened is they brought all of these people together. And you can bet there were a lot of debates. I'm assuming there were raised voices. I'm assuming that there were passionate people on multiple sides of the issue. But the Holy Spirit was there. It was covered in prayer. We had people seeking God together. And they came out with a letter that they wrote to Gentile churches on what they needed to follow from the law. 
And that we actually have the text of that letter in Acts 16, verses 24 to 29, as, as they work together. But they had to work through the theology of all of this together, but they didn't do it by calling out people in public or throwing stones or posting on social media. They got together and they negotiated. The next level, I think, is when we start dealing with issues of morality. So we've got the gospel, we've got theology, and now we've got morality. We're trying to define what is right and what is wrong. And we live in a culture right now where all of us have been almost given freedom to define that for ourselves, which makes debates and discussions about morality somewhat fraught. But we also know from what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 8 that within the church, within the body of believers, we have a clear approach to dealing with disagreements on moral issues. And in that case, they used an example that isn't as relevant to us today, which is whether or not you eat meat (laughs) sacrificed to idols, but the, the principle is the same. If you believe that you have more permission or you have a more permissive understanding of God's morality, and yet you are friends with someone who has a more restrictive view of God's morality, then our responsibility as Christians, out of love for one another, is to restrain our freedom to help the person who doesn't believe they have that freedom. And so when we work through issues of morality, we also have a clear direction from, uh, from Paul on how we do that. Again, it doesn't involve doing things publicly in a way, weird way. It almost involves not acknowledging them at all. If you know that somebody has a different, more restrictive view of morality, your job, not to talk about it with them, not to necessarily debate it with them, although you certainly can if it comes up, it's to sacrifice your own freedom to support your brothers and sisters in Christ. So we've talked about the gospel, we've talked about theology, we've talked about morality. Then there's other areas which are just wisdom-related. These aren't necessarily right and wrong, they're wise or unwise. My, my, my favorite... Um, villain right now seems to be the amount of time we spent on social media. And even though only four and a half billion people are online, if you average across all seven billion people on the planet, the average person spends two and a half hours a day on social media. Seven years of your life will be checking TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, etc. Now, I'm totally hypocritical here. I can't say I've never used social media or anything of that ilk, but one of the things I know is that it is wise for me to be aware of how much time I am spending and how much influence that I am giving there. Does that mean that looking at any of these things is morally right or wrong? I think there may be some narrow circumstances you could argue, but no, it's not. This is just an area of wisdom. It's the same sort of reason that you choose not to go to a high crime area of town at four in the morning and then let your car break down. These are not wise things to do, but they're not necessarily issues of right and wrong. They're not necessarily issues that have anything to do with theology, and they're certainly not anything that has to do with the gospel. And then the final area, honestly, it's just preference or custom. We do things this way because we've always done things this way, or I'm more comfortable there. There's styles of worship that we all prefer to other styles of worship. There's, there's ways of meeting together as a community that, we, that some people like and some people don't like. And so we have preference and custom. And so we have this whole hierarchy of custom, but the danger of living in a world that loves to embrace conflict is we love to escalate things up that ladder. We, think, we take things that are preferences and we turn them into moral decisions. We take things that are moral decisions that we turn them into theological decisions. We take theological debates and we turn them into issues of the gospel and to issues of salvation. And my challenge to myself, my challenge to all of us is stop. 
understand the reality of where things are because scripture gives us counsel on how to handle all of these things. And if we truly understand what scripture has to teach in these areas, we can live as a unified body of Christ with people we don't, disagree, we don't agree with on preferences, we don't agree with on morality, we don't agree with necessarily on wisdom, and we don't necessarily agree with on theology, but we can all get behind one gospel and one truth, which is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be saved. And I would argue that sometimes hearing alternate positions from other godly people who are wise, and you wonder how could they possibly believe that? I usually find in myself, when I am asking the question, well, how could you possibly believe that? Means I don't understand the alternate position. And so perhaps there's wisdom to be found there. Perhaps there's insight. Perhaps, gasp, I might even change my mind. So it's within that context of the criticality of the gospel and the importance of us not turning everything into a gospel-related issue that we now have to look at Paul's behavior. And so what are the criteria for behaving like Paul? Well, the first challenge that I have for the criteria of behaving like Paul is how many of us read this passage and put ourselves in Paul's shoes and not Peter's? Because I certainly did. Because I'm certainly always right, and it's my friends who are always wrong. So I needed some counsel as to how to confront the people who were wrong when I was clearly in the right. And yet the number of times we see this happening in Scripture, I think, is one. The number of times in, in, in Scripture where people were wrong, that Jesus had to teach into them misunderstanding something, was, well, the Gospels, I think, all of them, pretty much. And so the first thing I think we need to understand when we're looking for the criteria of acting like Paul here is, you're probably not in that role, just by the law of averages, right? And so we need to understand the, bre the breadth of the dispute that is happening there. But the second criteria is that for Paul, what mattered, again, is going back to the criticality of the gospel. The issue that he had with Peter was that Peter was teaching things that damaged people's understanding of God and damaged their understanding of the sacrifice that Christ made. And he goes into extreme detail about, by reintroducing the law, how we limit what Jesus has done for us. And so I think the important thing is, if you're thinking that you might be in Paul's role here, this isn't a case where you disagree with somebody theologically, morally, wisdom-wise, or preference-wise. This is a case where they are teaching something that breaks the relationship between God and man or makes it more complicated than just Christ's sacrifice for us. Now, if that dispute turns around and we say, yes, they're saying, and as a Christian, we should behave this way, no problem there. To become a Christian, you must, potential problem there. So if you find yourself listening to someone who says, as a Christian, we should, and they list a number of things that you don't necessarily disagree with, that does not put you in the role of Paul here. There's disputes throughout all of scripture. There have been disputes throughout all of history that happen in a loving, unified body of Christ that fall into all of those categories. But if you do hear somebody saying, in order to become a Christian, you need to trust in God and do these other things and believe these other things, that's when you have, I think, the freedom and in many ways the responsibility to directly address that in front of the people who are impacted by that. And that's daunting. And I think we need to be careful because scripture also warns us. If you're going to do that, be careful. You're going to be held to a higher account 
because you've challenged this. But that being said, we also don't want to let false teachings of the gospel itself stay out there because people can be misled and people might miss a chance to understand something in a way where the Holy Spirit can work in their heart and bring them to that understanding. Now, God can work through anything, but we also want to stop that false teaching from resonating. And in fact, Peter himself, the person on the other side of this dispute, writes in 1 Peter 2, he says to put away all hypocrisy. The hypocrisy that Peter uses, same word that Paul uses to criticize Peter here. Those are the areas where we need to call these things out and we need to put them away and separate them from ourselves. And the other thing I think the challenge with Paul is that you have to um, engage at the same level that the, the, the false teaching is engaged. And this goes back to the, it's not time to call somebody up and ask if you can meet at Starbucks because you think they have their understanding of salvation wrong. It's somebody, if you know that they're a believer and they're now teaching something that is hypocritical to what they know to be true, you confront it in the context it's in, and that can be very uncomfortable for us. It's certainly not something that our, our culture would necessarily overall embrace. But I think that's part of the criteria of doing what Paul has done here. But again, I urge caution, because that, I think we need to be very careful to place ourselves on Paul's side, because too many of us will find ourselves on Peter's side. So if we're on Peter's side, if that's where most of us are, at least most of the time, What's the challenge of being Peter here? Now, you'll notice Peter's reaction doesn't actually show up in this passage. You can go back into this passage and read it from start to finish, and you're like, so what happened here? What did, what did Peter do? The great thing is, is that this isn't the only book of Scripture. This isn't the only letter that, that Paul wrote. In fact, we have letters from Peter himself. And in those letters, we hear his reaction. In the history in Acts, we know what happened after this. Peter stopped saying that you had to become Jewish in order to be a Christian. He preached a message that was true to the gospel that Jesus taught him before his ascension. We see that, again, we use that example of the Jerusalem Council. Sometime after this, Paul and Peter, who had this big dust up, brothers in Christ, lovers of Jesus, lovers of God, brought themselves into a group of people with another person who's just name-dropped in this passage, which is the people who came from James. James, the brother of Jesus, was also there at the Jerusalem Council. And so what seems to have happened here is that this confrontation that Paul, that Paul made towards Peter was responded to with grace, was responded to with a change of mind and a change of behavior. Let me ask you, how easy is that for any of us to do? When I get publicly humiliated and told I am wrong, my first reaction is not to say, oh, you're right. It's to pick up my fists, whether physically or metaphorically, and to fight back. What do you mean I'm wrong? I'm Peter. I'm one of the 12 apostles. I'm one of the three closest friends of Jesus on earth. Who are you? You're some guy from Tarsus. You persecuted the Christians. What could you possibly know? We don't have any evidence that's how Peter reacted. What we see that Peter did was turn from pursuing something that was wrong and returning to the truth of the gospel. And we see echoes of this passage in both of the letters recorded in Scripture written by Peter. Whether it's 1 Peter 2, whether it's 2 Peter 3, what we see is a man who was chastened because he got it wrong. He listened to somebody, maybe he trusted, he was misled. 
But thankfully, he loved God enough to realize that he was misled, to be called out for being wrong, and to stop, and to change his mind, and to change his words, and to change his behavior. And that is super hard, especially when everything is in conflict first mode all the time. And so I think our challenge as we listen to this, if we're going to put ourselves in Peter's role, is figure out how do we pause long enough to listen. And that can be very, very hard. And the reason it can be very hard is that we value culturally the quick repartee, that rapid rejoinder that I'll call you out when you call me out. And so our challenge then becomes, okay, how do we open our ears to what the Holy Spirit might be telling us through the voice of a friend, of someone we trust, or of this person we at the very least know follows the Lord. And I think our challenge with that comes back to certain things that you have probably heard from this pulpit as long as you've attended this church, which is that one of the best ways to know that you are listening is to immerse yourself in scripture by actually reading it. Read, listen to, however, Have someone read it to you, does not matter. Read it aloud to your cat, it does not matter. The truth of this word will never return void. But too often we listen to people interpreting this. You're listening to me right now, I am interpreting scripture. You should be reading the scripture itself. You should be reading this passage when you get home. Okay, I'm gonna read this Galatians passage because hey, I've read it before and I certainly didn't get what Todd got out of it. Okay, don't take word of Todd, let's go with word of God. Much better, okay? And what you'll find is as you read scripture, if you follow um, some of the patterns we've done here, we're going through and reading scripture once through in a year. I do that in an audiobook format or an audio Bible format. It takes between 10 and 15 minutes every morning. I'm listening, and because I'm an overachiever, I do it on double speed, so it takes five to seven minutes every morning. <laughs> and all of a sudden I realized, okay, I've just listened to five to seven minutes of scripture. And then over the course of a day, I'll listen to two hours of people talking about Scripture. Hmm, perhaps I've got the balance slightly wrong. And so one of the ways that you can listen to the Holy Spirit is listen to the Holy Spirit, not always listening to other people interpret what the Spirit says. That doesn't mean there's not value in the historical understanding of truth, because truth has been refined over time. One of the things you see in Acts is that the early people in the church were still figuring stuff out, that we now have the benefit of Scripture that can tell us. And that has happened through time. This book was written or was compiled well over a millennium and a half ago. So sometimes it needs interpretation as to how does this apply to 21st century America when this was written written to 1st century Palestine, right? It's not saying that there's not value outside it. But one of the things we should do is spend time reading scripture and listening to what it says. Because then all of a sudden you'll start to hear echoes. And the other advantage is once you've been doing this for a while, if you've been at this church, for example, since Jeff started to encourage us to read through the Bible in a year, you've probably read it seven to ten times now. And I'm pretty sure that the first time you read it, there was a whole lot of, huh, didn't know that was in the Bible. Maybe the second and third time, but by the second or third time, it's become like one of those favorite books. Like for many of you, I don't know whether it's Chronicles of Narnia or Harry Potter, where you've read the book like four times or 12 times or whatever it happens to be. And each time you read it, you're you're picking up more. You're picking up more notes. Perhaps you're reading this passage in Galatians and saying, hey, for the first time, I actually thought I might be Peter here. Or maybe you've gone beyond that and said, wow, what would the Galatian church be thinking having heard this? 
And approaching scripture again and again allows you to start to take different perspectives on it. And it allows you to learn from what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. And if we continue to pray, God, please illumine this. Please explain it. Please help me understand the stuff I don't understand. It doesn't mean you will ever be a day when you can go through this Bible and say, yep, I understand it all. But as we can progress in our understanding of God and we progress in our understanding of the gospel, then those things that are false, those things that are incorrect are going to stand out more because we'll be able to say, wait a minute. Micah 6 eight says, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with our God and you're not doing justice or mercy or, or humility, perhaps you're not in line with scripture. Choose a passage. It doesn't have to be that one. But there are so many ways that we can hold up things that are represented as being from God and say, yes, but this seems to contradict what God himself says. And so, yes, please read scripture. And the second thing is to pray over it. As you're dealing with those situations, pray, God, I've been challenged. I've been told I'm wrong. Am I wrong? Did I get this incorrect? Did, with the best of intentions, did I come to the wrong conclusion? We have access to the Holy Spirit, to God himself, who is our comforter and our helpmate in our lives. God responds to prayers like that. Not instantly, not immediately. It's not something that we can say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray and in 30 seconds I'm going to have an answer. But God is responsive to prayers to reveal himself to us. And so when he reveals himself to us, we continue to grow, we continue to mature, and hopefully we can behave like Peter did. Where Peter was able to see the incorrectness of his understanding of the gospel and change what he taught and change how he lived and change how he communicated such that he is still a person that, yes, we may look at some of those passages and still call them, oh, Peter, passages. There's no question we're going to have a chance to see him sometime in eternity. There's no question that he follows Jesus. There's no question he loved his God. He loved our God. And he wanted everyone to understand. In 2 Peter 3, he says, God's not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness, because he doesn't want anybody to perish because they don't know this. He became fully embracing of everybody, whether they converted to Judaism or not. And he said God himself doesn't want anybody to miss out on a chance to know him and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. And that's part of why it has taken God a while to fulfill all of his promises to us is because he wants more people to discover who he is. So if we're putting ourselves back in the first century and we're looking at this conflict and we're hearing from the Galatians, they may not have known everything that came after this. But what they heard was somebody recognizing how critical the gospel message was and hearing from Paul himself what the importance was of Jesus' sacrifice for us and how it trumped, how it was way more important than following a bunch of rules and following the law. And then they also began to recognize over time, whether it was years later, whether it was decades later, all of a sudden more news started coming over of what was happening in the church. And it's like, oh, yeah. What Paul proposed, what Peter is now doing, all aligns with the truth and the true message of the gospel that we can all believe. So I hope you'll join me in, in, in praying and asking God to, to help us internalize that. So dear Lord, um, this is a, 
a wonderful passage, but a challenging one. And as we look at the conflict in the world around us and we look at the conflict on our own lives, we ask for your help as we navigate all of that conflict. We ask um, that in the rare cases we need to behave like Paul, that we would behave like Paul. And in the more common areas where we need to behave like Peter does and change what we believe or change how we reflect what we believe, we pray that you would give us the strength to do that, the ears to hear what we need to do, and a chance to continue to grow to be more like you. Because, Lord, we are grateful for salvation, which comes only from you. We can't do anything to earn it. And we know that if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.